Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 169 for November 6th, 2008. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. Time for Security Now, the show that talks about protecting yourself online, your computers at home, keeping spyware, adware, and malware off your system. And here he is, the guy who coined the term spyware and knows more about protecting you than anybody else, Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be with you for our weekly chat. Yes. Did you stay up late on election day, election night? More than usual, yeah. Yeah. I finally... I finally gave up at ten, I think, because you know, you know, I'm I'm up at four thirty in the morning. So, so, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm, but I feel fine. I'm on six and a half hours, so that's fine. Is that but, all you need? You only sleep six hours a night? No, no, no. I normally give myself eight. I've, I've learned. I mean, I'm just useless to myself and the rest of the planet unless I'm, you know, have enough sleep. And so I'm, I, I really do give myself enough. I read a programming book once. The uh, the guy uh, gives programming classes, and he says to his students, he says. Coffee is not a substitute for sleep. Don't think it is. There he goes. Now, Steve, how big is that? Wait a minute. How big is that cup of coffee? That's the biggest thing I ever saw. As soon as coffee is not a substitute for sleep, Steve pulls out like a quart of coffee and starts drinking out of it. But it, but it is a good point. You got to have, you know, if you really want to use your brain, you got to have a good night's sleep. Yep. And a Quinti Venti Latte. Quinti Venti Latte. It keeps everything going. Yeah. <laughs> Today, our Q&A segment. Um, uh, we've got uh, 13 or 12 great questions from our listeners, including the sock stress solution and a sandboxy question, which we'll uh, answer in uh, just a little bit. We also have the tech news, and uh, I'm sure we have errata and addenda from previous episodes. Before we do that, a little bit of news. You probably saw this on Tuesday. One of our favorite authors, Michael Crichton, passed away. Yeah. Uh, great author, creator of, I guess the first book I read of his was the and- Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain, Jura- the, the Jurassic Park novels. Uh, oh, wait, the Lost World, which is the successor uh, to that. He did Sphere, uh, Sphere and Coma. State of Fear. Prey, remember that? That was a great one. Pre- oh, I liked Prey. Yeah, yeah, the little nanobot thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and and Coma, I think, might have been. Coma? Yeah. Very early works. Yeah. Great Train Robbery might have been his first. First, that goes way back, doesn't it? I think that was, and and I was uh, I was saying to you before we began recording, Leah, what was what I always found remarkable is that anything he wrote, I think maybe without exception, somehow turned into a movie. I don't know what who he knew or what his deal was, but you know, I mean, there are lots of science fiction books I would love to see made into movies, um, but because Michael Crichton didn't write them, they're not movies. But anything he wrote somehow 
it became a movie. I don't know why. One of our all-time favorite movies was Andromeda Strain. And of course, he gave us ER too, didn't he? Did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He did. He did. He was a doctor, wasn't he? A physician, and he. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's why so many of his things had a strong medical, right. a strong medical um, side to them. And uh, um, I'm pretty sure he was the executive producer and starter, the guy who started off ER, which is on its last season, by the way. I think it's ten years now. Wow. Well, we're going to miss Michael Crichton, but I'll tell you, yeah. uh, and you're right. I think one of the reasons his move, his books were often made into movies were, were that he wrote cinematically. It was a, His novels were all visual. You could see them mm-hmm. in your mind's eye, and it's one of the reasons they make such good books on audible.com. Uh, Audible, of course, our sponsor for the show, and uh, they have, I think, 23 of Michael Crichton's books. There's interviews with him including The Andromeda Strain and Airframe and State of Fear and Prey and Timeline. That's the one we were talking about. That wasn't, such a, right. wasn't such a good movie, but was a wonderful book. Uh, you can get them all on audible.com. In fact, I'm going to give you a special URL where you can get one for free, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Sign up today for Audible. Pick a book. You get a credit toward a book at absolutely no cost to you. In fact... If you decide you don't want to continue your uh, subscription to Audible, you get to keep the book. It's yours to keep forever. But I think you will want to stick around. Audible has, for the last 10 years, transformed my life with great literature. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction. You know, I noticed they just put the uh, speeches, uh, the uh, uh, concession speech by John McCain, which was so beautiful and so eloquent. Uh, Barack Obama's acceptance speech, also beautiful, eloquent, inspiring. They're online for free. They, they specialize in audio content of all kinds, even podcasts. So give them a visit, pick a book, and then get it for free at audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Whether you're driving to work, I tell you, I had a two-hour commute every day. I got two hours reading done. It was not a waste. Working out at the gym, I listen all the time. Walking the dog, gardening. Anytime you can't hold a book up, you can listen and learn. And when it's a book like Michael Crichton's Great Fiction, your mind's eye, I'll tell you, beats any movie set it brings it to life i feel like i'm there we recommend the andromeda strain a great one to start when michael crichton all of his books we'll miss him but at least his books live on at audible.com and we invite you to try one for free at audiblepodcast.com slash security now and it was cancer by the way at age 66 that finally took him. oh that's sad yeah i seem to remember that he was ill for some time actually um well, it's a sad thing, but uh, you know, it's in, you know one of the ways to to achieve immortality is to be a great writer, and so there's no question uh, his books will be read for years to come. Yeah. So, what did you make any mistakes in the last couple episodes? Well, we have no errata. See, he's um, perfect. I knew it. I, although I did, we did, we did have someone who disagreed with something that we said. And so we got a nice disagreement question in here, w- okay. which we'll discuss. We'll do that later. Um, right. It's not quite the same, but um, uh, there was a bunch of security news or some, some interesting stuff. Um, I discussed the update to opera um, last week and said that probably by the time people heard this, it would uh, 9.62 would be available. I wanted to confirm that sure enough, I think it was even later that day, Wow. That when we recorded it last Wednesday, 9.62 became available to, to which solved a a very serious um, exploit in Opera. So I wanted to make sure that anyone using Opera um, knows that 9.62 is available and updates themselves to it. Um, the Open Office suite has a 
also serious image-based um, remote code exploit. Uh, any open office versions um, prior to 2.4.2, and apparently open office version 3, which is just out, uh, also has it fixed. And I'm not sure about Star Office, the commercial version, but it might very well be that Star Office has a problem. If you own Star Office, you'll want to check to see whether this problem that's been found in Open Office uh, it involves the display of WMF and EMF, that is Windows Metafile and Encapsulated Metafile format. And so that, you know, if an office an open office product displays one of those images, there's a there's a, a it's actually it's a heap overflow in the processing code for um, the the image display that can uh, cause a remote code exploit to to um, to occur on your machine so you want to make sure you update open office if you're an open office user and there are mac users who use neo office which is a, a mac spinoff they probably should also check and uh, want to absolutely I'm sure fine. they all use the same java libraries so then um, microsoft produced what they call their security intelligence report for the first half of 2008 so the first half of this year and it had some interesting um, statistics um for every thousand runs of the MSRT, that's that malicious software removal tool, which, you know, every second Tuesday, one of the things almost invariably on the checklist is update your malicious software removal tool, and then it runs the next time you restart your machine. So for every three, I'm sorry, for every thousand runs of it, it finds or in the first half of this year, found three bad things hmm. in Vista Service Pack 1, found 10 bad things in XP Service Pack 2, and eight bad things in XP Service Pack 3. Holy cow. So, um, so that gives us some sense. I mean, I've always wondered what it's doing. It's never found anything bad on any of my machines, but clearly, so so what's that? Ten and eight, that's eighteen and three. So so twenty one twenty one things bad out of a thousand runs. So it certainly is finding problems. What's interesting is, and this was not a it won't be a surprise to our listeners who've been following along and paying attention, is that um eight out of the ten top problems uh, that is 80% of everything found relate to ActiveX controls. That is this this really, you know, disturbingly um, ill-conceived technology that I've, you know, groaned about in IE from the beginning. The idea that that Microsoft didn't implement a secure, a fundamentally secure approach to to allowing scripting and, and add-ons for IE, they basically took their existing, you know, DLL technology and renamed it ActiveX so that, you know, so that basically anyone can provide ActiveX controls, which is executable content that your browser runs. And we know what a, what a focal point for security problems web browsers are. I mean, it, it's, it's the thing you're sticking out onto the internet every time you you visit a website um microsoft defended 
um, as as part of their dialogue, they uh, explaining this. They they defended ActiveX, but acknowledged that it was impossible for Microsoft to police its technology. And 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 the the guy that that produced a statement said, "quote You have to enable add-on development for the browser." The question is, how do you extend the browser and at the same time provide guidance to developers on how to write secure ActiveX controls? You know, and of course, my answer is, well, you don't. Um, you know, you you use something like JavaScript, which is a a, a sandboxable, you know, fundamentally protectable technology where you're able to you're able to run scripting in a safe interpreter rather than literally downloading executable code that runs natively on the machine. That's, that's just too dangerous. So for that reason, um, we're going to have um, the author of Sandboxy on as our guest oh, next good. week. Oh, because, fantastic. Yeah, he, uh, we, he and I have had a dialogue in the past. Um, I asked a question uh, in our news groups, GRC's news groups, and learned that a ton of people are using Sandboxy with 100% good experience with it said okay it's time to 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 have this guy on to tell us about the notion of sandboxing um web browsers um and it goes way beyond you know it it sandboxy started off as sandbox ie but it's a a a absolutely effective sandbox for example for firefox as well so he will be our our guest next week um also there's it was a really interesting report from rsa security about their discovery of the surprising penetration of a Trojan called Sinowal, also known as Torpig and Mebrut. And um, it's, it's three different names for the same thing. But, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, okay, you know, you want to be careful because you don't want to get one of these on your machine. Well, next week, I'm going to describe in detail what RSA found and has, has made public about this Trojan, because it it really drives home how important it is for people to go to whatever lengths they need to to keep their machines clean. And so it'll be the perfect it'll be the be the perfect um, companion to our talking with Sandboxy's author, because you know his his concept is uh, is a is the the notion of wrapping protection around the browser. We know that you could use a a so-called heavyweight approach, for example, running a browser in a virtual machine and use that for containment. But that's again, it, it, it's 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 a an, an expensive in terms of starting it up, shutting it down. You know, as as we know, VMs need to have all of the RAM that they're ever that they ever might use pre-allocated. So it's not RAM friendly in terms of sharing resources with with your machine. Sandboxy takes a very lightweight approach. And so I wanted I want to have you know to have the author on to sort of explain to us what he's done and why what he's done is safe um, because from everything I've heard and I've used it myself what he's done is easy to use and that's really what you want in this kind of a of a prophylactic wrapper around our web browsers. You know when you say Trojan penetration and prophylactic wrapper <laughs> you're really 
<laughs> You're really making me think it's another subject entirely, but I'm going to keep my mind out of the gutter and remember this is about security. Okay. Well, and I'll change the the, the subject quickly to Please. get us away from that. Thank you. Just sharing a, a quick little note from someone, Jake Oswald, who for a change is not a Security Now listener, but he wrote to us just to tell us that he was really happy with the way Spinrite works for him. He said, I recently had a system failure after an automatic update of Windows XP from Microsoft, which required a system restart. When I turned on my monitor, the screen displayed Windows is shutting down, which it wasn't because there was no hard drive activity and had been trying to do that for hours. So I pressed the reset button and eventually got a screen that said there was a corrupted config file and the system could not restart. I contacted my employer's technical support service, and as soon as he learned that it was my own home computer and not one of the office computers, he said, log on to grc.com and buy Spinrite because it repairs, quote, nine out of ten disk failures, unquote. He, so he says, I did, and it did. Spinrite ran for about five hours, and when I rebooted, it was fixed. Thank you for a great product. Very good. Very so. good. Once again, Spinrite <laughs> to the rescue. It's like the Dudley Do-Right of software programs. Yeah, you did that voice well. We'll save you, Nell. Just turn on Spinrite, and all will be well. Sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize profusely. We've got questions for you, Steve. We've got uh, some great ones. Twelve questions. From 12 listeners, strong and true. But yep, before we, yeah, before we do, hey, I want to welcome back uh, one of our favorite sponsors. They've been gone for a while, but they're back, and I'm talking about Nerds On Site. We love the nerds. I know you've been in the Nerd Mobile, in fact. They came to pick me up when I went to, uh, to uh, Vancouver a little while ago. Uh, nerds On Site, uh, let me explain a little bit about what Nerds On Site is for those of you who haven't uh, heard us talk about them. Before I do, I will give you the uh, URL though, and that's I want to be a nerd. dot com. <laughs> if you if you're the kind of person that would go there, you're already a nerd. I got bad news for you. It's <laughs> it's too late. For it's you. too late. And we say that with love and affection because being a nerd, we're all nerds here, and we're proud of it. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nerds on site is a team of IT professionals. They're looking to uh, to connect with you, nerds, in all competencies, all competencies and skills to help build your business as a nerd on call. Uh, the Nerds on Site team is growing once again. If you're a PC or a Mac expert, if your specialties range from anything to software design to Oracle to Cisco, fix-it technicians, website designers, sales, trainers, security experts, maybe you're an antivirus guru, I know there's a lot of you listening. They're looking for nerds who are solution-focused to today's small and medium enterprises, SME. That's really where the, the growing sector, in fact, it's the only growing market sector right now. But it is growing, and that's really good news. Nerds remain independent contractors. You're still in business for yourself, but you just not by yourself. You focus on what you care about, not the burdens of running a business. That's what Nerds on Site is there to do, to help you get customers, to help you keep customers, to help you get the job done, and find, find answers, too. Um, because you can learn more. They have uh, their University of Nerdology, and you can also call on help from other nerds. It really is a great team, and the people who are members of the Nerds on Site team, uh, I know all really love it. Uh, locations now in eight countries, Canada, the U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, India. They've expanded even since we talked last about them. So if you're a nerd, 
You love working with people. You'd like to pursue your business dreams, but not worry about the tricky business side of it. If you'd like the support of other nerds, if you'd like to train and expand your skills, go to IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. I want to be a nerd. Dot com. They do. I think they use GoToMeeting for those meetings, and you can you can find out all about it, what what they offer you. It's a. I think it's a fantastic business, and uh, and it's a great way to stay in business, to do the business you love without having to worry about the the details. And man, if I wish there were nerds on site for podcasters, I would I would join immediately. I want to be a nerd.com. We welcome you back to the Security Now family of industries. But right now, are you ready, Steve, for some questions? Ready. We've got some good ones. Uh, Actually, a similar question from uh, two listeners. So if you don't mind, I'll read two questions in a row for you here. First from Guillaume Eau Claire in Sherbrooke, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Canada. He wants to crypt his links. He says, hello, Steve and Leon. Now, I've rethought about your forthcoming project, uh, product CryptoLink. And we talked about that on a previous show. Um, I I re-listened to both the PPP Security Now episodes, the perfect paper passwords. And I just got to have at least an idea of when this product's going to be available. And I'd like to know if split tunneling will be a part of it. I'm sure you'll explain that, Steve. If I'm Well, I guess he's going to explain it. If I'm at a remote location plugged into an insecure link, uh, I want to be able to VPN tunnel home, ask for a web page, then home fetches the page, sends it to me through the VPN tunnel. I have some customers Customers will be ready to pay for that kind of setup, especially if it's going to be an assembly and small and fast, which is your specialty, Steve Gibson. So he wants to know, when are we going to see CryptoLink? And Rich Schreiber in Erie PA says, it's a, it's a, it's a question. CryptoLink? Question mark. <laughs> he says, Dear Steve, I know you're extremely busy. I wanted to thank you and Leah for your devotion to keeping us all informed and secure. I also want to know if you could mention on a future show the status of CryptoLink maybe even some of the features you plan to implement. Many of us are waiting with great anticipation. OpenVPN works great, but too difficult to walk someone through on the phone. Hamachi forces disconnects if you don't continuously upgrade every time they come out with a minor upgrade and you can't route through the host. Other options aren't secure enough or don't offer true VPN connectivity. Thanks again. So, Steve, what's the story? CryptoLink uh, well, in, in your future? This is representative of... A bunch of questions. So I finally just today I thought, okay, as I was as I was reading through this, I ought to just take a minute to sort of explain to people where we are. Um, You may remember, Leo, I think it was a little over a year ago. You and I were it's the time we were in Vancouver sitting on that table on that patio outside. I'll never forget. It was a beautiful night. That was a lovely bottle of wine. And you told me something very interesting. Well, I, I recited to you just by memory three pages of bullet point features for the upcoming VPN-ish thing that I wanted to develop. And but at, at the end of that third page, your mouth was hanging open and you said something <laughs> like, wow, you know, if you pull this off, Steve, it'll be the most significant thing you've done. I, have this, I had the same reaction these guys are having, you know, when? Yeah. Um, well, and that's the problem. Um, you know, it's just me doing this. And my style is is much more the tortoise than the hare. Um, it's not that I'm slow, but I hoped that I'm thorough. And and my approach is to really want to get something done 
rather, I mean, get it done, finished really to a point where I never need or not, not soon need to look at it again. Um, Spinrite 6 um, has not a single byte of its code has been touched since it was released in 2004. Which nope. I, I want to point out is not a bad thing. It means it's it's there. It's done. It's, it's bug free. There's nothing that I know that needs to be changed. And in you it. don't. Uh, this is what I admire about you. Your tight code. You know the feature set is there. You don't feel the pressure that many manufacturers or vendors seem to to add unnecessary features just so that there'll be an upgrade every year. Right. Exactly. So so. Yes. So I'm not like, you know, nickel and diming people. Right. Spinrite 5, I think, lasted for five years right. before I before 6 came along because I needed to add it to add compatibility with unknown partition types. Um, so um, at the so last summer, I was really anxious to get going on CryptoLink. But there were there were a couple things that I had left undone. There was the whole third party cookie initiative that I feel strongly about. I wanted to add the technology to the site, to GRC's site, to so to sort of automatically in the background let people know if third-party cookies were enabled because it's so easy to turn that off mm-hmm. in all contemporary browsers. The problem was, strange as it sounds, sort of due to the, the, the organization or disorganization of the site, I didn't really have a place to put those pages. That is, you know, I just, it, there was already sort of everything there, but no real good organization. So I thought, okay, um, I need, before I do that, I need to do a menu. And so I, I developed over the course of several months, the world's only really bulletproofed, 100% script free, you know, non-active anything, non-Java script anything menuing system. Well, it took much longer than I expected, but when it was done, it was done and it's perfect. I haven't touched it since. All kinds of people have used it and do adopt it continuously. I get email from people with a question here or there, or they'll often post a question in the news groups and, and somebody there will answer it. So so that gave me sort of the 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 structure that GRC was missing for that allows me now to hang new things off of the menu, which I didn't have before. Then I, I switched back and plowed into finishing, wrapping up the third-party cookie technology, which I had partial, I had written all, all kinds of substrate, but had never gotten it finished because something else came along and interrupted me. So, so I thought, okay, the, my, my point was that when I start on CryptoLink, because I'm so resistant to changing what I'm focused on, I, I just, I didn't want to have to be pulled away from CryptoLink. So I thought, okay, that means I have to have menuing on GRC and I've got to get the cookie system finished, but, you know, like finish these things that I, that I had, that I had invested in heavily but hadn't had time to get back to so um what ended up happening was we found bugs in every browser's handling of cookies and i've ended up with a a amazingly thorough cookie handling analyzer um several things already happened um firefox 3 is substantially better as a consequence of the Firefox guys who were tuned into what was going on, they, for example, realized that when this thing came out and was going to require people, I mean, tell people you need to turn off third-party cookies, they had removed that from the user interface in Firefox 2, and they realized they're going to be in trouble 
if they don't have that in Firefox 3. So that's the reason that simple checkbox was returned in Firefox 3, making it easy for people to disable third-party cookies. And there were some problems. There were some cookie leakage that that the technology at GRC discovered in in header assets, page assets in page headers. Turned out you couldn't turn them off. Even though you said disable third-party cookies, they kept happening. And um, IE... Both six, seven, and eight have problems as well. So, so all of this was so all that technology finally got finished, and I was just starting to work on the on the documentation. And Dan Kaminsky happened with his DNS um, exploit. Um, and remember, I think that was in in May. I think. Well, in June, I decided. Okay, you know, this is a problem. It'd be useful to to do a really thorough analysis of DNS servers. Well, that was four months ago, and I so I suspended the work on the cook on on documenting and getting the cookie system public in order to do this this test of of DNS server operation. What we have is something phenomenal. I mean, it's it hasn't it's not public yet. All of the guys in the news groups have been testing it. Turns out all kinds of DNS servers are still vulnerable. They've not been patched by their ISPs. Um, uh, I will be making this public to our Security Now listeners before anybody else, probably maybe two or three weeks from now. Essentially, all the technology is finished. Now I've got to explain it all um, so that people aren't left with more questions than they, they started with. But But once that's done... Then I go back and write the documentation for the cookie system, which is also completely finished. And at that point, I get to start on CryptoLink. Um, so you my, haven't even you, you you've mapped it up, but you haven't started writing code. Is that what it is? I, correct. I have uh, no code. I mean, you had a written. very you knew you know what you're going to do. Oh, it's it's so simple. I mean, yeah. this is it's just it's just a matter of sitting down. I mean, and and. And I mean, there's nothing I want to do more than to say, okay, I get to start on something new. Now, right. there's three, at least three patents are going to come out of this. One of them I already started. Um, in fact, well, one, one of them is finished, done, submitted. I've got serial numbers and so forth. And to give people an idea, I mean, my the to, to answer our, our second uh, Rick's question, like some idea of what it's going to be, first of all, it can be anything we want. I mean, my intention is that it is an incredibly easy to use VPN product that, for example, uh, supports the YubiKey natively, supports perfect paper oh, passwords that would be neat. natively, uh, supports OpenID. The, it has a fundamental TNO, the trust no one model, so that there's no third party involved. So, for example, in 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 our in our first questioner's instance, you'd be able to run a uh, you'd be able to run your copy of CryptoLink at home, and you'd also be able to have it on your laptop. And so your laptop would connect to your home, and and then your home would reissue the traffic coming from your laptop out onto the network. So it'd be like your own personal hotspot VPN, with the advantage being that your traffic is decrypted 
only at your home, not at some central point like on, on, on a Tor node or a, at a hotspot VPN that might tend to be a magnet for people who want to do traffic analysis to see, you know, whoa, you know who's, in, who's using the system for, for what purposes to encrypt their traffic. So it'll do that. It'll also do NAT router penetration the way Hamachi does, so that if you don't want to set up a, a, a system at home, if you just want to, like, mail a copy to a friend whose whose desktop you need access to, you can just email it to them. They can run it, and it'll connect in, in the same easy way that Hamachi does. But, for example, unlike any other SSL VPN, um, even though – it has an open port. The port is not open, which is the first of the patents that I have un, 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 underway. I don't want the um, crypto links open ports to be visible. So I have a way of cryptographically stealthing open TCP ports. That'll be part of what CryptoLink does. And for example, CryptoLink will also be able to open an array of ports and your client will be will send an array of packets to them so that if your if any intermediate isp is blocking some of them other ones get through i mean the idea is i'm going to do everything i can and that's a lot essentially you know anything to come up with a product that just works that i was i was having dinner with some people about 6 months ago and uh, two couples um, were um, in the car driving to to dinner, and both of the gals, by bizarre coincidence, were complaining that their corporate VPNs wouldn't connect. One had been in the hospital with, with her husband, and she said, yeah, I couldn't use the, you know, I was able to get online in, in the hospital, but my corporate VPN wouldn't work. And the other one said, oh, yeah, I have the same problem. I'm never sure if it's going to work or not. Well, my goal is this thing, I mean, I'm not going to stop until this thing manages to find a connection no matter what no matter what it has to do so anyway that you know that's my plan for it um my development arc is what i intend to do is to very quickly get something working that is i'm not going to just sit you know uh the 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 hermit in the cave for who knows how long until I believe that I've got something fully finished. The, the, the technology just isn't that hard for me to develop. I've got so many pieces that I've worked out already that I'll be able to get something going soon. So there, it'll be in pre-release but usable condition, and then we will start adding features. I say we because a lot of this is going to be done with full visibility uh, to the people in GRC's news groups. Um, they're just a phenomenal resource. I've used them with Spinrite and with the cookie development and with this DNS name server testing. It's just so tremendous for me to be able to to put some code up and say, okay, guys, here's something new. Tell me if I got it this time. And, you know, in very short order, I've got a, you know, a, a really good broad spectrum um, t- testing. And, it, it also allows people to say, hey, what about this or what about this or, hey, I need this or, or I need that. So anyway, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I have no idea at all when it will be done. It, there, it, there will be a done because everything I am is about, you know, saying, OK, this is version 1.0 and it is complete. It is finished. Um, what I can say is that lots of people will be able to use it as it goes along and 
basically what I'll be doing is adding feature after feature after feature. My intention is to actually write the UI in something very plastic like Delphi, just because I don't, you know, what I always end up doing is I paint myself in a corner by designing the user interface first, then because I want everything tight all the time. And, and, and that then tends to limit me from adding features. So, so my, my development arc is to write the core in assembler the ultimately, once we know what it wants to be, once every feature that we can think of and is useful is there, then I will cast the UI portion in assembler. So it will end up being 100% assembly language, super tight, super small, with a ton of features that you know everybody wants that nobody has taken the trouble to do before. Because I look at these VPN products and they're just like, okay, well... That's fine, but that's, you know, I can do something way better, you know, that is way more robust and way more secure with all kinds of authentication, trust no one or use a third party um, uh, rendezvous server for for NAT penetration. It just, you know, it's going to solve the problem. And unfortunately, it's going to be Windows only. Yeah. Just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. (laughs) But it's assembler. You don't have a choice. Actually, you know, you could write the uh, low-level code. Well, I guess you're going to make calls, though, to the uh, Windows API, even from assembly. Well, so yes. you really can't write the low-level code in a, a portable fashion. Um, it'll, it'll have, I mean, uh, in, my, in my wish list, my, my, as I've been brainstorming this, you know, so many cool things. For example, it will, it will, you'll be able to maintain plastic connections to to remote instances of CryptoLink, meaning that if, you're, if your net connection goes up and down, it's not going to give you dialogues. It's not going to complain. It'll just wait until it's back on the net and then reconnect to the things that you said you want to make a persistent connection to. So that, for example, you could have resources like your, your printer at home. Your printer at home will just look like a printer on your laptop, and you can print to it you know, seamlessly, no matter where you are. And CryptoLink will take responsibility for for maintaining and, and repairing and, and keeping its connection to your printer at home, you know, transparently. You'll be able to, to, to run in what I call a full enclosure mode, which actually is, is, is what one of these guys was asking about, where um, all of the traffic that you use on the Internet is encrypted through the link to the the remote point, and then it's decrypted whether you're accessing machines in that network or going back out over the internet. But maybe you don't want to operate that way. Maybe you only want to to talk over the link to your to your network at home. Otherwise, you're for whatever reason you're fine with with, with the with the greater performance you would get going directly to the net. So you'll be able to specify that. I mean, all kinds of things. You know, one of the problems OpenVPN has is that it's it's router table based. And so if the network you're you're connecting to happens to be in the same network as the one you're on, that completely fails. Well, CryptoLink solves that problem. So just one thing after another after another, problems that I've experienced, problems that other people have experienced, I'm just going to solve them all. Sounds great. So that's my plan. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I've got some things I have to get finished first, but there's nothing I want to do more than to get working on it. So as soon as I can, um, that's what I'm going to do. Very good. Question number two, Dan Gardner. 
<laughs> disappointed Dan Gardner, I might add. Oh, very disappointed. Very disappointed in us. In San Antonio, Texas writes, I'm very disappointed. He says, in episode 167, the uh, last listener uh, Q&A that we did regarding the response to Dave in Perth about his ISB blocking port 25, if incoming SIN packets get blocked, then those of us who run small home-based web servers will be totally up the creek. That's right. Besides that, what impact would incoming SIN blocking have on remote desktop access, desktop and other services like that? I assume remote access, remote desktop uses TCP IP. Yep. I couldn't believe Leo when he said, I love this idea of blocking SIN packets. It would eliminate all this stuff. It won't eliminate all this stuff. It might eliminate some stuff like botnet operators from contacting bot zombied machines via TCP packets. But it will prevent bots from receiving UDP packets. on. But will it prevent bots from using, receiving UDP packets on standard open ports? I don't know a lot about how UDP works, so you'll have to answer that one. I don't think you can have a conversation with UDP, but I guess they could. I don't, well, I'll ask, we'll ask the expert. Uh, will it prevent the spread of virus through uh, malicious Java code on websites or through emails? Either way, blocking incoming SIN packets will affect a lot of people in a bad way. So why are you and Leo salivating over the idea? I don't think we salivated. In fact, I think we were very clear that there would be problems associated with it, including people running servers. Maybe Leo and you can afford to pay for a web host, but there are lots of folks who can't just want to run a non-commercial, low-traffic web server from their homes, and dropping incoming SIN packets will eliminate that ability. Yeah, there are free hosts with tons of ads and pop-ups, I suppose, but maybe we don't want all those ads. Anyway, I'm very disappointed in you and Leo. I am Spinrite 6 owner, promoted all the time. I'm probably one of the few who actually made an in-office purchase of Spinrite. At that time, I lived in Garden Grove, California, and drove to your office to get it. Wow. You don't get a lot of people in the office buying Spinrite, I would imagine. There's no office anymore. We're completely <laughs> virtual. Well, that was virtual version 5. I said I picked yep. up Chromazone. Wow. At the same time, I've been a big fan of GRC and a loyal listener. Security now for over a year, ever since I found out about it. But when you and Leo take positions like these, which restrict our use of the Internet, it really hits a sore nerve with me. Feel free to use this on the netcast if you wish. Disappointed Dan Gardner. Well, I wanted to let Dan vent, and I also wanted to clear up any misconception that any other listeners might have. I wasn't saying I thought this was a good idea. I was saying I was sort of seeing it as inevitable. I could I could sort of see the handwriting on the wall. At the moment, ISPs are blocking incoming SINs on specific ports, but sort of the 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 general nature of a of a ISP's customer the end user is the is, is as a client of servers rather than as a server of clients right and and so i completely understand what what dan said of course i mean i'd be up the creek myself if i didn't as have as would i but but those of us who run servers maybe should be buying different service or you know we have a higher responsibility. Now, here, here's the fundamental, I think, the crux of his question. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't significantly improve security, then he's right. There's no point in doing this. What about, you know, does it completely thwart botnets? Uh, does it thwart viruses in any way? Is it really a, 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 an improvement in security is the real question. Well, first of all, we, we know that the word completely yeah. doesn't have any right. place in any kind how, of a discussion. How, how significant is it? Um, the problem is it's trivial to do. It's it's literally a command entered into a router, um, in, in into a filter list in a router. I mean, incredibly simple for an ISP to do. We know 
that I, as I mentioned when we discussed this, I guess it was two episodes ago in 167, we know there are ISPs that are already natting their customers. Customers don't have publicly routable IP addresses, you know, like 25.26.27.28, for example. You know, they've got something like 10. Something, 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 which we know is a non-publicly, non, non-publicly routable IP. It's a, it's, it's in that ten dot reserve space, just like you know one nine two dot one six eight something something. So, so we know there are already ISPs that are not offering those services to their customers, and we do know that there are some ISPs who, who don't offer that service. But for an extra price, you can purchase that. I mean, I can see that happening. I mean, I, again, I, I, Dan somehow really got the wrong, I believe, got the wrong impression of, of you know, where you and I stand, Leo. We don't, you know, you and I are all for absolutely non-filtered, non-restricted use of the Internet. Um, and my concern is that that because the majority of of ISP customers don't need to serve, they only need to be clients. And because it's so simple to block incoming SIN packets, even though it isn't, as Dan challenges me on this, even though it isn't a solution for so many things, it's so simple to do and it would solve such a large chunk of problems that I'm worried we're going to see the time when that happens. But I said worried. I'm worried we're going to see that happen. You Not weren't advocating can't it. can't wait. You weren't advocating it. No way am I advocating yeah, and I it. I think if you listen closely, we, we, we merely spoke of it as a, as a possibility, um, and maybe even a probability, but not necessarily something we were, we were saying should happen. Yeah, I, I'm afraid at some point we're going to start here is we're going to hear about it and we're going to see it and we're going to say, well, yeah, we people you know. were very upset when uh, Comcast uh, started blocking port 25, uh, which I think is a perfectly reasonable thing. But a lot of people say, but I want to run my own email server. Um, I think that there are, you know, there's a balance. And frankly, if you're running a server, I think uh Maybe you should be buying a different class of service. Maybe that the solution is to offer tiered service. Uh, yeah, I and you can certainly imagine the the uh, a point where this price gets you a client only connection, and right. this point allows you to to host services. Right. And then maybe they'd have to vet you more carefully or monitor you more carefully. But most people would get the less expensive one, and that would eliminate a whole category. What you couldn't do a botnet without uh, Syn Synac. Because you need, oh, you, sure. you could, yeah, you, you absolutely can. Because typically bots are phoning outwards from the infected client, so it's the the sin packet going out, and that you have to allow because that's how yeah, anybody yeah, yeah. connects to a remote web server. But you also have to allow incoming commands, or a botnet is useless. Sure, but but that but those commands come in over the uh, connection that was established first outbound. I see. So this, this this would do nothing to thwart botnets, for example. Well, um, if, if it doesn't Nora, stop botnets, it's not that useful. Well, see, but and that's the other thing is that I don't think ISPs are really seeing much cost of problems at this point. Right. That is to say, it has if, to if, hurt their pocketbook. Right. If it was really expensive that that customers were able to to run servers, then there might be you know you you can imagine a motivation for the ISP to tighten things down but there just isn't doesn't really matter to an ISP whether you're running a, a you know a, a web server 
um, or a mail server. Well, except in the case of a mail server where there was expensive because then they were getting blacklisted as right. a source of spam. Right. And yes. so, 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 the, and there, there's another good example. ISPs are blocking 25 because they were finding their networks were added to um, blacklists and that was causing a problem for all their customers. So their ISPs responded. When, 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 when something causes pain, the ISP will deal with it. At this point, in general, running services doesn't cause an ISP any pain, so we're not seeing any consequence. Well, I imagine so few people are doing it. I mean, it's not something most users do. Right, right. Ward Reed in Pensacola, Florida says, don't do it. Steve, sorry for the overstated subject line, but do not use your PayPal card. We were talking about the one-time uh, credit card feature of PayPal. He says, don't use it as your primary credit card. It's acting like a debit card or... As a radio, one radio host calls it a fake credit card. Even though Visa isn't a show sponsor anymore, the zero liability is relevant for a credit card only. That's not true, but we'll talk about that. The only problem with debit cards is that the vendor or scammer has your, as opposed to the bank's, money. You may or may not get it back. You're giving up far, far too much to use a debit card. Getting up, well, giving up one-time use or getting up one-time use isn't worth it. Discover has a one-time use card option. I've used it many times. Citibank does as well for some of their cards. Uh, our listener said American Express does. Uh, but the banking laws have changed for debit cards. For a long time, debit cards were very dangerous. But the banking laws have changed. I think a debit card is pretty much treated as a credit card uh, now. It used to be you were, you know, they were only, they were, you know, <laughs> that you could take out a $1,000 out of somebody's account and the bank would say, yeah, sorry. Well, it, it's interesting that that this question hit at a time when just a couple of days ago, I found myself like at the PayPal site ready to move forward. And I stopped because I remembered that it is impossible to override the source of, um, of the account. That is the uh, PayPal will only take it from a checking account. And unfortunately uh, in, in my case um, uh, that's what I've got registered. I don't have a source of funds sitting in, in PayPal. And I was, I remember there was, I wanted to briefly join for, for something. I don't remember now what it was, but it was a very sketchy site. And I was like, oh, there's no way I'm giving them my real credit card. So I thought, okay, I'll use a, a one-time PayPal. But then I thought, wait a minute. I mean, I mistrusted this site so much that I didn't trust them even to withdraw the $4.95 or whatever they said they were going to. And I realized I was letting them because PayPal doesn't give me an upper limit uh, capability. I couldn't say create a card and set a limit for $5.50. You know, it's just, it's open-ended until you close it. And I thought, there's no way I, I, I can use this. Now, I do know because many people have written in uh, with, with their solutions for my credit card dilemma um, once did say that American Express had withdrawn that service. Oh, interesting. So I don't know whether that's oh, still that's available. I'll have to check. He was using it, and then they said it was no longer. That, However, why would you stop? That's such a great service. Yeah, well, and apparently uh, both uh, uh, many people recommended Bank of America and Citibank um, with both uh, Visa and Discover cards. So um, I'm going to you know, track that down. Someone said that Citibank has a downloadable piece of software. And I do like the idea of using a piece of software right. just for ease of use instead it's of having to, to go to the website. And, yes, exactly. Although the website keeps all the trans all the card numbers and so forth. So you can kind of, you do have this record. 
I've just checked Visa and MasterCard, which is the kind of card that the PayPal uses, uh, do stand by the zero liability for debit cards. So you, Good. you, that uh, banking law apparently does give a little more leeway on debit cards for the bank, but both MasterCard and Visa have the same zero liability policies for your debit card as they do for your credit card. So I, uh, Ward brings up a, certainly a, a good point and one to pay attention to, um, but you, and you might check, but according to uh, MasterCard, which runs the program for uh, PayPal, you do have zero liability. Mark Benson in Dallas, Texas, wants to transfer his risk. Hi, Steve. Can you recommend ways to transfer the risks associated with employing the conveniences of an online life? I wonder what he means. But, well, let's find out. I do about everything that can be done online. And there's something in me that feels like I'm playing Russian roulette when I make a purchase or complete a form requiring personal information. I know that feeling since listening to this show, Steve. I have the same feelings like, what am I doing? I, I'm extra cautious now. As a project manager, we could spend a great deal of time uh, considering what to do with risk. I follow the ATM methodology of managing negative risks. Avoid, transfer, or mitigate. Had you heard of that before? I'd never heard of no, that No, I thought before. that was neat. Much of what I've enjoyed learning on your Security Now podcasts uh, are behaviors that I would classify as avoidance or mitigation of a negative event happening to my computer or personal data. In a recent financial course, I learned of insurance for identity theft that seemed reasonably priced. I know I'll not be out any money with charges made against my Visa card, but the loss of time it takes to repair personal identity uh, theft increased by, on average, to 600 hours. Wow. 300% over previous studies of the Identity Theft Resource Center. That's true, though. When I hear about people having to clear this up, it does. it's just a ton. Oh, it's just unbelievable, Leo. With my time and my attention being very valuable, do you agree this type of insurance is a good measure? Identity theft insurance. Do you see other ways of transferring the risk of identity theft when it comes to protecting your personal information? So he's saying we teach about avoidance and mitigation, but what about transferring the risk by buying insurance? Yeah, the problem with that is that I'm not exactly sure what it is you're buying. As I understand it, um, you know, the individuals who are victims of identity theft have to spend their own time and resources and, I mean, just, you know, writing letters and explaining and, and just jumping through hoops. And, and I mean, really, it, it, you, we've all heard stories about how, you know, it just like ruins their life and they, they end up with, you know, their, their, their credit messed up and no one believes them. And it's like all of the burden is on them. I don't know how you insure against that. How, you know, well, there are companies kind of- that do this. I mean, what, like, I mean, like, take over the responsibility of, of, of doing all that. Well, the for one you. that comes to mind is LifeLock, uh, which has gotten a lot of advertising. Uh, that's the guy who gives out his social security number. <laughs> and by the way, you know, it's here, here's the point of it. They, they basically, the, the, they, uh, they do what they can to mitigate, but then the real point of this is they, they, if you get your, uh, uh, stuff stolen. They have a $1 million service guarantee and they take care of it and so forth. I would investigate uh, thoroughly. So is, okay, but, but that's prevention rather no, than... No, it's both. In, oh. It's both. So they okay. do the prevention part, which I think is very important, although, you know, they do things like put credit um, uh, locks on your, uh, on the various uh, secure, you know, like secu- Equifax. On the and, three different security services, right, yes. The, uh, the um, credit reporting agencies. Right. Um, and so forth. But then 
So they do they do all the proactive stuff, but then uh, they say we'll pay up to a million dollars to cure the failure uh, failure or defect in our service. See, I'd read these fudge words carefully, but the the idea being, if you should lose your identity, we'll take care of it and we'll give you and we'll reimburse you. I don't know if he's talking about LifeLock. I think that's the best known of these services. And you know, uh, there was some criticism of LifeLock, but uh, but then Bruce Schneier, who I know we both re- uh, yep. recognize as a real great security expert and a very reliable guy, um, kind of came to their defense saying that it's the credit. <laughs> he wrote an article, which I recommend reading, called The Pros and Cons of LifeLock. He said that the, the credit agencies hate these guys because they don't like these fraud alerts being placed. It's a pain in the butt for them, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they've kind of tried to poo-poo this. But he, he says, I think it's more of an economics thing. So Wired Magazine's uh, Security Matters column by Bruce Schneier, he talks about this. It came out in uh, June of this year. Uh, I could put a link in the show notes. You can read about the pros and cons. I would say his bottom line is, well, you can do all this yourself, so I don't know if it's worth paying for it to do it. Um, but it's not it is what the service claims to do. He says, get LifeLock if you want or one of its competitors if you prefer. But remember, you can do most of what these companies do yourself. You can do the fraud alert. You can put the credit freeze on your account. Um, you know, you can check it regularly. I guess the real question that, that they are, you know, you can do all that. Is the insurance then worth it? And that's what right. our, that's, that, that's exactly what our question is about. Well, and, and it's interesting too, because I, I liked how Mark started off by saying, look, you know, I'm doing everything I can online and I'm feeling very vulnerable. I mean, and you know, you and you you commented that you know that the the just participating in the podcast for the last four years has yeah. heightened oh, your yeah. awareness, and, and it, you know, it has mine too. Because I mean, this stuff is going on, and and it it is it's unfortunate that at this point in time we're sort of in this this uh, strange place where. We are, you know, filling out forms, giving our name, address, you know, fundamental information about us, spreading it far and wide to all kinds of, you know, entities that we know nothing about. We know not, you know, not, not where they are, not who they are, nothing about their reputation. It's like, oh, I want what you have, so I'm going to have to tell you all about myself. And, I mean, it, it really is, it, it's something that, that, that doesn't scale well. And I don't think in the future that's going to be the way the model works. There, there will be models more like Google Checkout and PayPal, where where they serve as a front and 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 protect a lot of this information for us. Yeah, ultimately that's probably a better a better way to do it. Google's doing it with medical records too, and um, so they're really kind of investing in this kind of thing. Right. Bruce's bottom line is it's 120 bucks a year. That's a lot of money. He doesn't think yeah. the risks you run are great. Uh, he says you can do it yourself. He does say they've paid out their guarantee 113 times in the four years the company's been around. So they, they do pay it out. Uh, he says, and by the way, most of the time, it's been problems that occurred before the LifeLock was used. So he's saying what LifeLock does is effective. So you can do it yourself. Maybe the best thing to do is figure out what they do, read this article, do what he says to do, protect yourself, and then not worry about uh, you know getting getting in trouble because you won't. Right. One hopes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it is scary. I mean, I understand what Mark's saying. I'm, it's scary these days. Mike in Ohio has an idea for hassle-free click jacking protection. 
I've been I use NoScript by the way, and it's so ha- it's such a hassle. I turn it off. It's like, hi, oh, every site, every site says hey, you want to use these scripts. You want, and that's like I gave it up. He says after listening to the clickjacking episode last week, I had a question regarding NoScript. I've not used this plugin prior to listening to the uh, netcast, so I gave it a try. I quickly came to the conclusion, as I did, that this wouldn't be that easy to recommend to friends and family who are non-technical based on the high potential of fatigue and frustration they may have in using the plugin. I remember you mentioned that NoScript would still protect you against click-checking even if you chose to use the option to allow scripts globally, which they say, dangerous, danger. So my thought was to get my family and friends to download the NoScript plugin. If they experience any fatigue or frustration using the plugin, then I'd have them enable the option that says just turn on all scripts, thinking they're still protected against clickjacking. Your thoughts on this would be greatly appreciated. I also want to say I've listened to every episode, and I greatly appreciate all the work you and Leo do every week to produce a top-quality netcast. So that's what I'm doing, Steve, right now. I'm, I'm using it, but only you know with all scripts on, because it's such a pain. Um, I did verify that uh, what I had said last week was correct. And that is with no script present, the, the, the current version of no script, um, if you do choose to allow scripts globally, um, then you still get full click jacking protection. The second link on the show notes for last week's click jacking um, episode um, is a demo uh, a, a simple click jacking demo. And with, if you go to a browser, uh, either a non Firefox browser or Firefox without no script installed, um, you don't see what you do. You don't, you don't see what's really going on. You go there with no script installed, even if you have decided to allow scripts globally. And instead what you see is what's un, what would normally be hidden which is the in in this case the the little flash configuration dialog asking for permission to turn on okay. uh, to to give the other end uh, access to your camera and video. So so yes, I wanted to let Mike know that strategy works. And Leo, because Leo and Leo. <laughs> Leo's using it too. Um, it's like it's worse than user access control. I mean, oh my god, every five minutes, you know. We have a couple more questions about that later on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Jared in Australia, Washington. Wait a minute. I, or either in Australia, Western Australia, one or the other. I don't think there's an Australia, Washington. I'm guessing he's in Western Australia. Is getting SSL certificate errors from Google's Gmail. He writes, for people who access uh, Gmail over SSL using IE7, they might like to be aware of a certificate error page that IE presents you with before entering Gmail's page. If you didn't know this, you do now. There is, you'll see there is a problem with this website security certificate. Really? I, I haven't seen that. Of course, I'm not using IE7. The security certificate presented by this website was issued for a different website's address. One of the two links is to continue, not recommended. Can you explain why this happens only with IE7 and not previous versions of IE? He's using the beta version, the new version of Oh no no! IE seven is the current version. Yeah, um, it's it's weird. When he when he wrote this, I thought, well, okay, this doesn't sound right. Yeah. Um, I on a hunch, I put in https colon slash slash gmail dot com. Okay. And I got that error message. Oh, all right. And and so here's what's going on is is for some reason Google has grabbed the gmail.com domain 
and has that pointing at the regular Gmail domain, which is mail.google.com. Oh, and so, so it's a mismatch of the names. Yes, exactly. So, so what, what, what Jared is doing is he's using gmail.com, which is not the official website. I mean, that's not the domain name for, for, for Gmail mm-hmm. that Google is offering, mm-hmm. but it happens that it works. The problem is, since he's using HTTPS right. to go to gmail.com, um, the first thing that happens during the connection is that the name of the certificate sent from Google server right. is compared with the URL and they don't match because he's not supposed to use gmail.com right. over secure connection. So, so that's the cause of confusion. But I thought it was an interesting question for all of our listeners because the idea is that the, the, as, as we've discussed before, the certificate of the server that you're connecting to, the, the, act, the exact name has to match what you've got in the URL, or the browser says, whoa, wait a minute, um, I've gone to the IP that DNS told me to go to, right. I've established an SSL connection, I've exchanged credentials, yet the server is saying it's a different server than the one you're expecting. Well, this is crucial for avoiding man-in-the-middle attacks, because a man-in-the-middle attack would, I mean, it would intercept that, and the and what the man-in-the-middle cannot do is give you Google's certificate signed by an authority you trust. Right. That's that's the critical link, and so um, so it's important that the browser complain if there's a security certificate mismatch. But in this case, Google doesn't have a different IP and a, and a separate certificate for gmail.com. Instead, they just dump you on their regular IP, and sure enough, the certificate does not match. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was sort of an interesting yeah. glitch. So, yeah. so, Jared, you can avoid that by going to mail.google.com using HTTPS, and it works the first time every time. Yeah, I think I've seen that happen before uh, when, I, you know, it's a mismatch of domain names. Uh, yeah. That's fairly common. So it, that actually would happen not just with IV7, with any, any browser would do that. Yes, it yeah. should. Yeah. One hopes. If it doesn't, get a bit of browser. Uh, Kevin Lampo in Lebanon, New Hampshire, was thinking about secure ways to vote using SSL. Stephen Lee, I've been listening since Security Now was known as This Week in Tech. <laughs> I, don't I don't think that ever quite was. But, never, never, but, never, but, never but happened that way. your show first, and then Security Now came along as number two, yeah. I guess. So it's always been part of the Twit Network. It's a confusion, because This Week in Tech is the Sunday show that's the roundtable with the journalists, which you've been on, mm-hmm. uh, and Twit, which is stands for This Week in Tech, is the name of the network. So you're a member of the Twit Network, but the show is Security Now. I know. I, I don't blame him for the confusion. Uh, is uh, he says whatever the name it stimulated much gray matter to the chagrin of my wife as i sit here pondering what tuesday's election will bring i began to wonder how else people can securely and fairly vote i also began to think about the long lines the ordeal um, uh, may have and the lack of polling personnel i came to one question could a secure website using ssl on a credit card be structured to provide the mechanism for a state to collect votes there already exists the means to check authentication the whole validation process can happen behind the scene as one is filling out the voting forms. The process can be done with little need for human interaction at home or at work, and that's what scares the hell out of me. What do you think? Thanks for all the info on the incredible and valuable spin right. 
Well, it was an interesting question. Um, my take is that the technology is not the problem. Right. Um, you know, we've got the technology for, I mean, we've got, we've got technology coming out of our ears. We, as soon as you have a, a public key technology where, where you're able to, to, to have one key encrypt something that the, uh, that only the matching key can decrypt or, and vice versa, that other key can do the encryption and only your key can, can be the, can do the decryption. Once you have that, that's an incredibly powerful piece of technology. And we've seen all the different ways that it can be used. But that, that's just the technological enabler. Um, the problem is everything else. I mean, you know, we could just sit here, and I'm sure our listeners could too, just sort of tick off all the things that could go wrong with, you know, with anything um, – where we like try to come up with a of of a non person present voting technology, and unfortunately, there's a high, there seems to be a high motivation among some people to game the system to to come up with a way of 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 exploiting any sort of weaknesses. So I just I don't think I think we're a long way away. From, from anything happening, not at all because we don't have the technology, but because we don't have anything else. I mean, we, you know, so much else of what we would need to, to come up with a, a, a trustworthy uh, voting system just doesn't exist. You know, the, uh, the, the temptation for technologists like us is to say, well, well e-voting. And uh, as we've learned from e-voting, which is even one step less removed than uh, online voting would be, uh, without a paper trail, it's very, very dangerous. Um, and uh, even with a paper trail, people have to know enough to look at the receipt and say, is that what I voted for? And I, I suspect it's a problem. Uh, doing it online, is, I, I wonder if we'll ever have online voting. I don't, I'd be surprised. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm very disappointed in, in so much of what I see. There, there were, I, I saw yesterday, because we're recording this on Wednesday, yet yesterday was Tuesday, November 4th, voting day. Um, the examples that were being drawn of the butterfly ballot, where how, how you're supposed to like join two boxes by by right. by filling in Draw a line. black mark, yeah. and it creates an arrow. And I mean, in in some in a recent small election, something like one out of ten people did it wrong. It's like my goodness, folks. You know how how can it be so messed up as that? Right. And the other problem, the idea, for example, that a company like Diebold has proprietary a, a proprietary system that of that is closed source closed technology and they're selling it saying trust us right i mean you know <laughs> i mean i mean it really this that's the kind of thing that can really get me going ballistic you know because well, it just in it the, just seems so wrong. In the state of California, I think our we have a very enlightened Secretary of State, Deborah Bowen, who I've interviewed before, is very technologically savvy. Last year, she had the University of California assess these machines, and they were all decertified because yeah. they were all hacked. They could hack. They hacked them in several different ways, and they said, "If you'd given us more time, we could have hacked them in more ways." So. You know, let's let's solve the security problems we have with online banking and the internet first, <laughs> and then we could think about voting. The well, and and for example, Leo, I mean, you know, somebody is making a tremendous amount of money selling these machines to 
to municipalities and, and the U.S. government. It seems to me, it, I mean, given all the technology we have, the the proven capability of of open source with a lot of oversight yeah. to 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 vet problems. I know that 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 if, if if a requirement were put together saying, okay, whatever you know, um, ma- manufacturers, you have the the right to make the hardware. Uh, following these specs, we're gonna we're gonna force everything else to be open. Um, and and let academicians and and hobbyists and security professionals, you know, plow into this and f- and and come up with a robust solution. Yeah, still don't think it's going to happen. I, I I know, and, and this is too important to mess with. Uh, you know, going to the polls, validating your your. I mean, by the way, the the secret of voting anyway is that a, a significant percentage of votes are lost, miscast, messed up. It isn't yeah. a perfect system as it is. Yeah, um, and I don't think making it electronic is going to make it more perfect. <laughs> no, and and although you know, not wanting any more nightmares, it was nice that that there was such a decisive result because now we're not you know in the margins having to recount hanging Chad, well, and, and that's where it becomes problematic. And the ooh. thing is, our as we go forward, elections are going to continue to be close. I don't think uh, in this country the the way it's constitu- constituted the. There's, there's any party is going to have such a strong majority that it, many elections are going to be razor thin. And that's when all this stuff really becomes an issue. Yeah. Well, in fact, I think right now in California, here we are, it's the next day. And um, there are still a number of propositions and ballot measures that are, you know, that have an unknown outcomes because right. they are very close. Right. Virginia, I think, is still uh, out there and un, unregistered. Uh, let's go on. Another question, and this one comes from Athens, Georgia. Bill Rakosnik writes, Thanks for your explanation about the latest update to NoScript. I was using NoScript on a couple of my computers already, but I wasn't using it on the family computer because my wife and children have too much trouble functioning online with scripting disabled. Sorry, Steve. Uh, after your explanation last week, I now have it installed on the family computer with scripting allowed globally. That's how I'm running it uh, here, too. However, I've always wondered what the other updates to NoScript do. Steve, you've used IE with scripting disabled for years. You didn't need regular updates to that feature of Internet Explorer. Why does NoScript get so many frequent updates? I currently only understand what the last update to NoScript was for. I don't understand what any of the previous updates did. I mean, scripts are on or off, right? I would have thought NoScript either disables scripting or it doesn't, and that would it wouldn't need an, an update to block a script that it didn't block before. That would just leave updates to make sure that NoScript was compatible with the latest version of Firefox. And I know I'm getting more updates to NoScript than there have been updates to Firefox. <laughs> What's the story, Morning Glory? Um, I think the problem is I, I did notice sort of the same thing, a, a long trail of point, point, point right. updates and versions. I think that the author is 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 nailing down problems that he encounters that, that users report um, I don't know if he's writing it hastily, if it's not being tested by a, a, a large group of people. I mean, I, I can attest to the fact that, that you know, the, the people in my news groups are a tremendous asset for all the work I do because they're able to really pound on stuff quickly. And I know I'm not putting out half-baked versions that haven't been heavily tested. And in, unfortunately, in this this incredibly heterogeneous environment of all kinds of operating systems and browser versions and, and operating environments, 
um, there's just no way not there's no way to to get around the need to really test yeah and so it must be that that problems are being found and no scripts author is fixing that problem that another one's found he fixes that and another one's found he fixes that the other thing is he's he's not doing something that is as simple as it appears he's getting himself much more involved with the browser in order to in order to to give us the features that we're asking. So no script is really evolving beyond something that right. simply turns scripting on or off. Um, in fact, these latest features are not about scripting being on or off. They're completely tangential, but because no script is so popular, he's giving us new features in this existing tool. Uh, Almond McLean. <laughs> I love that name. Almond oh. McLean. In Yuma, Arizona, wonders why Netstat is bailing. Hello, long-time listeners. Since numero uno, I just noticed uh, today when my PC was running a little sluggish, I did Netstat, and as soon as it finished loading its last address, it closed itself as if it didn't want me to see it. So I hit my print screen button and went to paint. Somehow I'm connected to nine connections. Time to format. I'm always running Skype and an old version of Hamachi since Log Me In messed it up. They bought uh, Hamachi, of course. Perhaps an old version of something I'm running is giving me issues. Why is Almond having nine connections? Is that an unusual number? Well, it's been a long time since we've talked about Netstat, the Netstat command. And it's we have described it. I want to just sort of refresh our listeners or to pick up any who hadn't heard this description. It's a, it's a very handy command built into Windows, uh, every version of Windows, um, and other operating systems as well that gives you a, a status of your network connections. Um, so you you launch a so-called DOS box or a command prompt and type N-E-T-S-T-A-T, and it will Im- immediately give you sort of a listing of what's going on. Now, as to how or why this thing is crashing or closing the box, I can't really respond to that. I have no idea why... Netstat would run and then terminate itself. It should not have the ability to do that. It shouldn't be able. So it may be that the the particular instance of the Netstat command is buggy and it's crashing the DOS box. But even that, I wouldn't expect, really would close the command prompt window. So I don't know what's going on there. As for why he's got nine connections, when you run the Netstat command, you'll see... This the status of a bunch of stuff over on the right-hand side. The word established is indicative of a connection, meaning that a connection has been established between your computer and another computer. And so you can look at the IP addresses and see if you recognize them. Many times you'll see 127.0.0.1 on the from side and the same 127.0.0.1 on the on on the to side what that just means is that the processes inside your own system are using the the ip technology in your computer to talk to themselves or or to other processes so that that just means a connection has been established within your own computer not to anything outside so that's nothing to worry about it may very well be that that's what these that that that's what almond is seeing is when he talks about these established connections is th- 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 these things are just connected to themselves 
Um, the other thing you can do is to add some additional features. For example, I use netstat hyphen an as in alpha Nancy an to get to get my normal. It's normal the way I run the command. But if you put a b n, the b option was added in XP. It does not exist in Windows 2000. So in XP, you can say netstat netstat space hyphen a b n, and it finds out and displays which process is is responsible for each of the line items in the netstat display. And that quickly allows you to determine who is establishing these connections. Likely, I know that one of my my concerns when we talked to Alex, who is the author of Hamachi, um, was, gee, he's got TCP connections established to every single Hamachi client running in, in on the planet, which seemed like that would be a problem. So I do know that Hamachi will be responsible for some of those established connections. Um, Skype may well be ha- have a, a static connection uh, hooked up to Skype Central in order to, to, to perform its various um, housekeeping and, and management tasks. But if you do netstat space hyphen ABN, you should see Skype.exe, Hamachi.exe, and, and you'll, you'll be able to, de- to determine what it is that is responsible for, for making those connections. And, you know, if you see things you don't recognize or you're surprised by, that, that's a great place to start in doing research to find out what's going on inside your system. Very useful tool, uh, Netstat. We did skip number nine, Leo. Oh, sorry. Let's go back. More, ne- more, more NoScript. I got confused because all of these NoScript <laughs> questions. Uh, S. Bjorn Larson in Denver, Colorado is fighting and losing with NoScript. Steve, first, I wanted to thank you so much for all your dedication and knowledge you've added to my own experience. I love NoScript, but I actually end up disabling the add-on more often than not because most sites I visit use scripting. That was my experience. It even makes the Google search page unusable, even if I specify Google as a safe site. So what are your suggestions on effectively using NoScript? Right now, my experience with NoScript is very similar to my experience with Vista UAC, which I immediately turned off. Oh, boy. Uh Low tolerance for pain. Uh, I'm a very secure user. I work with security issues. I've never had a virus or hard drive problem, knock on wood, but I do own a licensed copy of Spinrite just in case. You and Leo are awesome. Keep up the good work. Well, if he, if he knows what he's doing, I guess UAC doesn't matter. And How Leo? do you use no script without having it drive you absolutely bazooty? Uh, the reason I didn't want to skip this question was this was when I, I planned to confess. You turn it off. I turned off too. It's it's just I mean I've got I've got it's it's running in 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 Firefox, but I've got a little exclamation point on right. my little red S yep. down there in the tray yep. because I've enabled gl- scripts globally. Yep. Um, it's just because there are so many scripts on every page, and I don't know if it's a flaw in NoScript, but uh, when you it just seems like when you click. Yes, yes, use the, anything on this page or, or everything on the site. It doesn't seem to remember it, and you still have to... I mean, it just drives me crazy. So yeah. uh, finally, I use it, I'm use it. i using it like that, too. Yeah, um, what I'm doing, my compromise is if I am in a mode where I'm going to sketchy places, I mean, this isn't this really, you know, it's not the way to be the most secure, but it's the way to keep your sanity, right. is I turn it on when I'm going places I don't... You know, where I may be exposing myself to some sort of problem. And again, it's another reason 
that I'm, that I'm very excited to have the author of Sandboxy on next week is, you know, we need a, a solution that allows scripting to be left on and still protect us from what, web, from what websites may be doing to us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we put this one in there then, because <laughs> yep. I was feeling like, oh, uh, well, I think a lot of us, oh, we're, uh, we're bad security people. Uh, we're going to take a little break here and come back in just a bit with uh, Sheldon, who, who has uh, a simple solution, he says, for the sock stress problem. That would be welcomed by the entire security community. And uh, Dominic in Stuttgart, who has a question for Sandboxy's author, which will lead us into next episode. Yep. Before we do both of those, I want to mention our good friends at, you know, Astaro. They've been with us for a long time, since practically the very beginning of security. Now, that's because Astaro makes, you know, the preeminent Unified Threat Management Box, or UTM, the Astaro Security Gateway. I'm a big fan. I use the ASG here, and I recommend any business, any small enterprise that wants to protect itself with a simple device that does everything you got to look at Astaro. In fact, you can get a demo unit free in your business. I'll give you that phone number in just a second. Let me tell you what the Astaro Security Gateway does. You've got three kinds of antiviruses, two for email, one for the web. You've got complete control over what your users are doing, even instant messenger, peer-to-peer uh, networking, um, anti-phishing, anti-spam. Uh, you've got some, some really interesting features that I don't know really if they belong in a UTM, but I think it's great that they put them in. Things that your business will appreciate. You know, it's about security. Transparent encryption, decryption, and signing built in. Your users don't have to know they're doing it using open PGP and SMIME. These are the you know absolute standards. I use it on my email, uh, but to have it on the enterprise-wide is just a great idea. Very easy to use uh, VPN, including SSL VPN, so the boss will be happy because there's, there's no configuration involved. It's very, Smithers, how do I do this VPN? Oh, no problem, boss. You just use your browser. It's easy. Um, you get, of course, as you'd expect, a really robust firewall solution, uh, you know, intrusion detection, all of that stuff. Really, I can go on and on and on. This is an absolutely incredible box. I want you to try it in your business. I want you to call them, 877, the number 4, A-S-T, ARO 877-427-8276, toll free. Uh, they'll get a box to you. You can try it out. Home users can try it for free if it's a non-commercial use, either by downloading it from astaro.com slash security now. There's a VMware appliance you can use as well. It makes it very easy to install. Uh, as long as you uh, you know have no more than 10 IP addresses, 10 users, or a thousand concurrent connections, which means I could use it for free in my small business, but I want you know I'd buy by the uh, license agreement, use the full commercial version. And by the way, they've done something really neat. They throw in the Astaro up to date as well. That's a that's a seventy nine dollar or seventy nine euro value, which is like eight hundred dollars. No, just kidding. It's a big. It's a nice value for free. <laughs> I don't know the euro. Abby's in France, and I know the euro is going up and up. Eight seven seven four two seven eight two seven six is the number. Eight seven seven the number four A S T A R O. Protect yourself. Protect your business with the ultimate security gateway. Astaro. Take a look at their web gateway too, and they have other products. A S T A R O dot com. We thank them so much for their support of security. Now, now Steve Gibson, our uh, ninth and or, I'm sorry, our eleventh and twelfth questions, starting with Sheldon Smith. He's in Apple Valley, Minnesota. He says, oh, no problem solving this sock stress thing. First, he says, thanks for a great netcast and spin right. By the way, Doctor Who is supposed to be cheesy. I know. <laughs> it's part of the 
fun, the humor. Listening to the Sock Stress episode and thinking of past episodes where Steve explains TCP and the TCP protocol, we're, th- we're talking about an exploit based on how the initial handshake works, right? So a miscreant sends a sin. The target servers reply with a sin ack. The miscreant sends an, oh, oh, wait, my buffer's full. And then everything grinds to a halt. So why can't the target have a timeout and just send a knack and drop the connection? Some clown calls me and says something like, oh, wait, someone's at the door. I'll be right back. I either tell them to call me back or wait maybe a minute, then simply hang up. If it's that important, they'll call back. Anybody would do that. In addition, don't the packets also have sequence numbers? The earlier we are on the sequence, the shorter the target system's buffer full timeout timer would be. That would be a good way to solve it. What do you think? Is that a solution? Didn't we address? I think we addressed a timeout as a solution. Well, yeah. And the problem is there are many different ways that this problem can be solved. The problem is none of them are in place today. So, so it's, it's certainly the case that, that, that there are, there are a number of ways that TCP could be hardened against this kind of exploit. Um, you have the potential problem for false positives, that is, for, for, for TCP being expected to function in, for example, a, a, a patient forever way, because there are some situations where you want that, where, where in fact TCP, by definition, establishes a connection which it maintains forever. At the same time, there are, there are I mean, all kinds of things that could be done to, to minimize the window of, of exposure to sock stress sorts of problems, but they're not in place right now. So it's like, yes, we, we can certainly do things, but the point was we need to do them, and they're not done yet. So anyway, I, I wanted to sort of respond to Sheldon. A, a He's number right. Of the, answer, the answer is good. Yeah. That would work. Yeah, he's right, but it's like okay, well, we got to do that, and and it's on the, the good list. news, the, yeah, exactly. And the good news is the, the the guys that came up with this are getting traction now. They are they've got the man, the vendor's attention, and I expect that you know these kinds of problems are going to get solved because they they succeeded in bringing this to the attention of of you know the powers that be that are in charge of of managing the development of, of our core low-level protocols over time. It's just going to take a while. And it takes so long because you've got to get all these clients to work together. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated threat, a blanket of, of, of interacting well, servers. It, it, it takes a while because anything takes a while. Right. I mean, just, you know, making a change. Well, you don't want to break the Internet either. Well, and that's the that's the other part. It's not just it takes a while. It's that the problems with side effects. You you absolutely have to make sure that what you do doesn't make things worse. Right. Uh, and finally, Dominic in Stuttgart, Germany. Dominic writes. He's got a question for uh, the author of Sandboxy. Dear Steve, I was at the end edge of buying Sandboxy. Really great tools, but the then I read in the forums, it's not working in Vista 64 for reasons the author has explained. Well, that's a killer for me. I'm planning to switch from XP to Vista 64. When you have Sandboxy's author on your show, maybe you could ask him about his plans for 64-bit support. Great show. Haven't missed one. And I bought Spinrite. 
So we will absolutely put that on the list of questions. Um, we'll we'll have a, a great episode. I'm going to talk about this the some really interesting details next week of the Trojan that RSA Security has has provided a great deal of documentation about talking about penetration and the the nature and detailed nature of the damage that it's done. Um, and the, these were infections that came in through people's browsers. So that's the perfect opportunity to have Sandboxy's author on, as we will, and talk about a very nice, lightweight uh, solution um, for solving this problem. Very good. Can't wait. That's going to be fun. Steve Gibson, you're the best. Always uh, fascinating to go through these questions and answers with you and, uh, uh, you know, get, get some insight. I think it's a really, I like that we do this every other show because, you know, you talk about some heavy duty stuff. And so to get some clarification, the opportunity to get some clarification is valuable for everybody I know. And I include myself in that. So thank you for doing that. Next week, we're going to talk to Mr. Sandboxy. Yep. And uh, we thank you for being here. Don't forget, you can go to grc.com to get spin right. The world's best disk maintenance utility. I use it on every drive before we use it. We spin right ahead of time. And of course, should anything, you know, we have any trouble, that's the next time it gets spin right. Very often saves our bacon. And as you know, you could save yours. GRC.com to get that. Also, while you're there, that's where you get the uh, all the security now. Show notes, the 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. Steve has transcripts online there too, which is very helpful a lot of times to read along as, as Steve talks. That's all at Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. Thank you, Steve. And, and I, will, I will remind people to go to grc.com slash feedback in order to submit their questions. All the things that I've been reading from people are from people who went to grc.com slash feedback. There's a web form there. Fill it out, and, uh, and I receive it. Uh, and in two weeks, uh, we'll go through that. Very good. Thanks, Leo. We'll see you all next time on Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.